Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And I just have to say how good it is to be back with both of you, two of my favorite, favorite politicology guests. And, and I'm back in the studio and you guys are both remote, but soon I hope we will be uh, in person together. Returning to the roundup is politicology fan favorite and mine, Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships. Good morning, Lene. It's great to see you. So good to have the band back together. And returning to the roundup, none other than Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you, even though we're not in person yet. You know, it's good to see you, and it's good to see you back on American soil, Ron. <sighs> it feels really good. And the OG listeners know that after, you know, a million episodes ago, I will never be introduced before. Again. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> On this week's roundup, first, we are going to discuss Tuesday's primary elections and how to adjust our reading of the landscape in their wake. Then we'll talk about the great replacement theory that motivated the shooting in Buffalo last weekend. We'll also look at a new warning from Department of Homeland Security about violence in the wake of the looming SCOTUS decision on Roe v. Wade. And then finally, we're going to flip over to Politicology Plus, where we will discuss Ross Douthat's recent column in the New York Times about a different way to think about Elon Musk's plans, which, as Ross puts it, are bigger than just letting Trump back on Twitter. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast that also comes with exclusive strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. And if you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Politicology Show in that app and tap the button to try it for free. Or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Tuesday, voters in Idaho, Kentucky, North Carolina, Oregon, and Pennsylvania cast their votes in the primary elections. In North Carolina, the scandal-plagued tree-punching cocaine orgy whistleblower Madison Cawthorn lost in the Republican primary for the 11th Congressional District, losing to State Senator Chuck Edwards despite an endorsement from Donald Trump. In the U.S. Senate primary in Pennsylvania, the Republican side is still too close to call between Trump-endorsed Dr. Mehmet Oz and his opponent, David McCormick. It's likely going to go to an automatic recount. In Cawthorn's race, he won just under 32% of the votes. Dr. Oz has about 31.2% of votes with more than 95% of precincts reporting at the time of our recording. That's close to the 32% of the vote that J.D. Vance won in a crowded primary uh, in the Ohio Senate race. So put another way, uh, despite Trump's endorsement in these races, about two-thirds of Republican voters picked somebody else. A lot of the coverage of the Republican primary races will be about what it means for Trump when a candidate he endorsed wins or loses. But in these races, the percentage of the vote has been consistent. Despite one win, one loss, one too close to call, the vote percentage is about the same. Um, however, it's worth noting that before this round of primaries, Trump's primary endorsement win-loss score was about 39 out of 40. So his track record is still, you know, very, very high. Lucy, why don't you kick this one off? Has either 
his overall win-loss ratio or any of these specific races changed the way you think about the electoral impact of a Trump endorsement now? No, I think that the Trump endorsement is still king. I think by some estimates, some some people um, estimated this week that a Trump endorsement gets you to about 30% as a starting point in a race, and that is pretty formidable. I also think that to the degree that uh, that in, say, a state like Pennsylvania, you saw um, a race as tight as the Oz race, Oz McCormick race is, um, it actually just further further shows the strength of Trump. Um, Barnett was a late surger. She's not going to make it over the edge. She is obviously the more MAGA-y of the the Pennsylvania candidates. Um, But even among her supporters, even as they became, you know, sort of were trying to make the case that she was more Trumpy than Oz, they were not even mad at Trump, right? They were saying things like, he just made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't see, he doesn't have all the information, you know, and I think even that, that shows his power. And and I think just through and through, it's still his party he is still going to be the kingmaker for the for the foreseeable future, and and we're talking about a lot of a lot of races at the top of the ticket, but that is happening up and down the ballot. He's endorsing in state legislative races as well, so he is here to stay. Um, in a sad day for democracy, Lene, Republican candidates who pushed Trump's big lie about the twenty twenty election did very well on Tuesday. Um, in North Carolina. Uh, Ted Budd, Representative Ted Budd, beat a former governor by more than 30 points in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate there. This is a guy who last year voted against certifying the election and texted Mark Meadows pushing a conspiracy theory about Dominion voting systems having ties to George Soros. And uh, on Tuesday, Budd refused to say that Biden was the legitimate winner of the 2020 election. And even more importantly, in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano won the Republican nomination by about 20 points. And according to the New York Times, Mastriano attended the rally on January 6th and has also called for the 2020 election results to be decertified. So can can you talk about Pennsylvania for a minute? Can you explain why people who don't live in Pennsylvania should care who holds the governorship of Pennsylvania? Well, of course, you may have heard of our friend, the Electoral College, and uh, full stop, right? That's all we need to know. We we know that the next presidential election is going to be close because they all are at this point. And, you know, um, if it is Trump versus Biden, Trump has about 47% locked in already, and we're just fighting over those last few. And that means we're just fighting over those last few states that are divided closely enough to go either way. And I was just looking at the numbers from this last um, time around in 2020. And um, if you had switched about 21,000 votes in specific states, we would have had another President Trump. And so it's really about these borderline states. And um, as we know, there was a big effort to um, just disregard the will of the voters in those states and um, put in a different slate of electors. And so the governor um, is going to be one of the people who can decide, um, you know, whether Pennsylvania or Arizona or Nevada or some of these other borderline states actually 
send the electors that their voters ask them to send. So the fact that we have a big lie person, you know, running for that office is scary for a million reasons, but but that's the biggest one. There's there's another reason that Pennsylvania is a knife's edge kind of case and Wisconsin is another battleground state that is like this, which is that Pennsylvania does not elect a secretary of state. Mm. The secretary of state who oversees elections is chosen by the governor. Pennsylvania also has strong Republican majorities in the state legislative chambers, right? And so if you if you have that recipe of a Mastriano governorship, a Republican secretary of state handpicked by a person who's basically uh, a January 6th uh, booster himself, plus Republican control of the state legislature, Pennsylvania is gone. No matter it does not matter how it i mean it, a democrat could could win by 20 points and pennsylvania would be gone that is this is this is i am not an alarm alarmist this is like a many gazillion alarm fire yeah. in pennsylvania right now We've been right. Talking also about the machinery. because go ahead go ahead Lene. also because democrats cannot win the electoral college without pennsylvania like pennsylvania right. is a big prize and it is the last remaining um it's the it's the most fortified of the blue wall states in terms of democratic performance and so so if we lose that one, um, you know, I, it's really hard for me to see how we get to 270. There are districts in Pennsylvania. Everyone knows I'm the state legislative makeup nerd. <laughs> there are districts in Pennsylvania that were that are R plus huge margins districts. In other words, the outcome of the November election was functionally decided in <laughs> this week in May, right? There are seats where you have people who are like 20, 30-year Republican incumbents who are the last line of defense among Republicans, people who did their very, very best to stop the insanity, who have been pro-democracy Republicans, solid, they're open about the fact that Joe Biden won the election. A lot of those people, not all of them, but a lot of those people got their clock cleaned Mm -hmm. this week. They're out. They're out in Republican incumbents who have done the right thing on elections. And and so, I mean, that's one of the untold stories and one of the really terrifying things about Pennsylvania. But I I I say that to say, you know, we have to look at the overall, the overall recipe that we're we're going to have heading into 2024. And that all is this year. The 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 people who are elected, not just in Pennsylvania, but in all battleground states across the country this November, that is the crop of people who are going to be deciding whether or not we have a democracy in 2024. This is the biggest not- takeaway. This is the <laughs> biggest, like, just put that soundbite on repeat and 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 spread it everywhere. I don't, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Lucy. I just like, this is no. the, this is, this is the ballgame, guys. And it's, it's not, it's not John Fetterman, right? God bless him. Wish him the best. It's, it's also, you know, it's, it's not Tim Ryan. It's not even, it's not the Republicans that we might send to Senate. It's the people who are, who live down the street from you, who drive to the state Capitol every day. And those are the people whom we don't pay nearly enough attention to who could be the difference maker 
if, of whether we have elections after the year 2024. And I just think, you know, to echo Lucy's point about that, I think it is interesting to watch how the lack of Trump endorsement plays out at these lower levels, right? Because like Trump didn't endorse those people, um, but it, Trump is clearly the stick by which his voters measure all candidates. And so it's kind of like they're all wearing like WWTD bracelets. Do you remember those like WWJD? Like what would Trump do? Um, And that is the proxy for his endorsement. Like they don't actually seem to care whether he is, some of them don't care whether he has actually physically endorsed someone or not. They're just like, but who would Trump want to win? (laughs) But he actually is endorsing some of them. That's That's the other thing that's crazy. So in a state like Michigan, for instance, another super important, I would say like the second most important battleground state of of this crop, a lot of votes, big state, lots of population. Donald Trump actually is endorsing state house candidates in their Republican primaries, right? And so that is... Trump is paying attention. Trump's team, Steve Bannon, they are paying attention to down ballot races in a way that no one on the Democratic side is. And it is it is just a, you know, in previous cycles, we could rely a little bit. We we had a little um a little bit of help from the fact that these people were super disorganized, right? In you know, had no infrastructure. Guess what? They have unbelievable juggernaut of infrastructure now. They have so much more infrastructure than Democrats do in these states. They have just record numbers of new precinct committeemen, you know, the people who are like canvassing. They are hyper-organized and they are getting involved in these down-ballot races. It's really something to see. They also have a very simple, simplistic litmus test, which is, was the election stolen or not? That's That's it. That's right. That's what it comes down to. before we leave this uh, this topic, I want to hone in on one other thing in um, in Pennsylvania, Lene, in the Democratic primary for the Senate seat. Uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman trounced Connor Lamb, Representative Connor Lamb, and won by more than thirty points. Now, Lamb, as some of our listeners may remember, um, shot to national prominence when he flipped a district in the Pittsburgh suburbs which Trump had won by more than 18 points in 2016. And when he rose to prominence uh, in 2018, Lamb was, he was a Democratic darling. He was heralded as a moderate who was electable. And Lamb's pitch to Pennsylvania voters centered on his electability. But voters chose Fetterman by a massive margin, who's already won a statewide election to become lieutenant governor. So just, I, I just want to tease apart this concept of electability now, especially when it comes to Democratic campaigns and candidates. How are you, uh, how are you thinking about that concept in the wake of this primary? What lesson does it teach us? And, um, and what can it be for Democrats if they're able to pick up you know, the Pennsylvania Senate seat? I think that Democrats um, are famous for kind of uh, projecting what somebody else might want to vote for, right? That's what we all did. Mm. <laughs> In um, choosing Joe Biden, we were like thinking, okay, who can beat Trump? And in order to beat Trump, that means I'm going to vote for whoever it is. But those people that I'm projecting are swing voters, probably like Joe Biden more than all the rest of the folks in this field. Like this is this is the calculation. Every Democratic primary voter is a pundit at this point. <laughs> so we're punditing <laughs> about yeah. who it is that might appeal to our next door neighbors. 
And, um, and so I think that is still what happened here. But I think that it was just what's what's interesting to me about the Fetterman lamb race is that it was actually two different kinds of versions of moderates. If you ask me, mm-hmm. because, you know, John Fetterman, he did a whole episode of a New York Times podcast in 2020 saying that the fracking ban was going to lose Pennsylvania. He is anti Green New Deal. He's anti Medicare for all. He's anti um, defund the police. He's anti all these like lefty things. And so people are like, oh, yeah, the Bernie Sanders candidate won. And I'm like, really? Because he said, don't lift Title 42. Like he's just, he's taken a bunch of positions that are really not in line with where the Democratic, you know, party is, or at least the Democratic Party on Twitter. Or at least the primary voters, right? That's right. But he is more like a John Tester than Mm -hmm. an Evan Bayh. You know, Um, Connor Lamb is in that tradition of like, really upstanding from central casting, like well-groomed yes. dude who I really like Too and well think groomed. is smart. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, who carefully thought about everything that he said out loud before he said it and all of these things. And then you've got Fetterman who's just like talking and he's like wearing gym shorts and wandering around the state. And that doesn't make him a Bernie Sanders person. It makes him like John Tester, where he's able to say, sure, I'm I'm with the left on some things. And also, you guys are dumb to ban fracking. And he is, so he's a more aggressive type of moderate rather than the, I'll try to, um, you know, really plan out um, how to appeal to everyone and not make anyone mad. And I think that's just what voters are in the mood for right now. And so I think they, they were thinking who's electable. And this guy who, you know, looks like he, um, you know, just walked out of your American League Legion um, is probably that guy. And he went to, you know, all the counties, I think, in Pennsylvania. He spent a lot of time in places that um, Democrats hadn't seen a Democrat in a really long time. And they were like, yeah, cool. I could see my neighbors voting for you. Um, and, you know, the other guy was mostly in the suburbs and not talking to those voters. And so that it was a different coalition. Connor Lamb is big time, little too presented a little too well, like he must be hiding something vibes Mm. and that's not a winning strategy anymore. I would just, I would caution one more thing that I think is important to remember about that race and the future of the, that Pennsylvania Senate seat. Something that we're going to see this cycle, I think more than we have since the Trump era began, is Republicans either being termed out of office or retiring, who are people who could never get elected today. And that's true in governorships. That's true, for instance, in Arizona. Doug Ducey is going to be termed out. You may not love Doug Ducey, but Doug Ducey is way too moderate to be palatable to you know, Republican primary voters now. In Pennsylvania, it's it's easy to be like, okay, well, we we that's an R seat. So if Fetterman doesn't get over the line, you know, nothing lost, nothing gained, right? No, it is because this is a race to replace Pat Toomey. And Pat Toomey is not like my favorite U.S. senator, but he is one of only a handful of Republican senators who has stuck his neck out against Trump. And so this is really more than just, oh, could we could we get a, a Democratic pickup in PA? No, this is think, start thinking about these people in terms of are they in the democracy caucus? Pat Toomey is in the democracy caucus. Now, virtually all Democrats, with some exceptions, very few, rare, are in the democracy caucus, and virtually all Republicans are not. But Pat Toomey 
is still in the democracy caucus. And so think when you think about races like that, when you think about some of these races in your own state or some of these races naturally, nationally, think about the democracy caucus and 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 then think about what the stakes are. I think that's such a good point, especially because it also extends to places like North Carolina and Ohio in the Senate races. Like we're going from Rob Portman to J.D. Vance. Mm-hmm. Gross. Like that is not a one-to-one switch. And, you know, Tillis and Portman and Toomey are all people I have worked with on substantive issues. You know, we worked with Pat Toomey to write the Mansion Toomey bill after the Sandy Hook shooting. Like these, I've worked with Tom Tillis on higher ed issues. Like they're legitimate legislators with whom I strongly disagree on a bunch of things, but we can have a conversation about legislating and policy because they believe in legislating and policy and the people who replace them will not. Yeah. Yeah. And the rule of law. Before we move on, I do just want to say that uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman said on Sunday that he had a stroke last Friday. He also said that his doctors were able to completely remove the clot causing the stroke, and uh, they implanted a pacemaker to correct the underlying issue that caused the stroke. Over the last year, there's been a steady increase in conversation about the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. So last April, Fox News host Tucker Carlson told his audience, quote, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement. If you suggest the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots with new people, more obedient voters from the third world, but they become hysterical because that's what's happening actually, end quote. The Great Replacement Theory line of argument had once been confined to the right wing, white nationalist fringe, but has more recently moved mainstream. The conspiracy theory is not simply that immigration to the United States could change American politics, but that a group of people in the U.S. is actively trying to replace native-born Americans with immigrants who agree with their political views. And it's catching on. Earlier this month, the AP reported on a poll that they conducted with National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago last December. And in the poll, about one in three adults believed there was an intentional effort to replace U.S.-born Americans with immigrants for political gains, for electoral gains, including nearly half of Republicans. Uh, The poll also asked people what cable news channel they preferred. 30% of Fox watchers believed in replacement theory. 45% of OAN and Newsmax watchers said they believed it. Uh, And over half of Republicans polled said that, quote, influencing the outcome of elections and changing the American way of life were both at least minor factors in why immigrants come to the United States. Uh, This isn't the majority view by any means. About two-thirds of the respondents to this poll said diverse population makes the U.S. stronger. But I would like to talk about this uh, phenomenon in the frame that Brett Stevens laid out on Tuesday in a Times column, which he titled, The Right Weaponizes America Against Itself, which I'm just going to summarize here for our listeners who haven't read it. He says, there have been four, arguably five, great replacements in American history. First, uh, he, he says, wholesale expulsion of Native Americans by European migrants. Second, uh, religious replacement of Protestants, who now number fewer than half of all Americans. Third, He says, ethnic replacement of the English, which included European immigrants, and, uh, quote, descendants of enslaved captives from Africa, the only replacements who came against their will. 
Uh, fourth, replacement of WASP elites and quotes, he quotes from Henry Adams describing uh, the immigrants he saw in New York. Uh, he says, quote, a furtive Yakub or Yizak, still reeking of the ghetto, snarling a weird Yiddish to the officers of the customs, end quote. And then fifth, which is uh, where we end up here, is, uh, quote, most contentious, but also the most routine and unexceptional, which is the alleged replacement of native-born white working class with a foreign-born non-white working class. And he says, this is both nothing new and nothing at all. The United States has, from its earliest days, repeatedly replaced its working class with migrants, not as an act of substitution, much less as a sinister conspiracy, but as the natural result of upward mobility, the demands of a growing economy, and the benefits of a growing population. So I'm really curious what you both think of both the piece, the frame, and the phenomenon of replacement theory uh, or replacement, right, which Stephen says has been happening for a long time and is arguably the story of America, versus the conspiracy being weaponized and mainstreamed by Tucker and his ilk. And, you know, in all of the, in all of the dialogue that I've seen in news coverage, no one is really teasing apart fact from fiction. And there's there's been this um, what I appreciate about what Stevens did was was look back to history and argue that this like the story of replacement is actually the story of renewal, as he puts it. And um, and there's a reflex in the media coverage to um, discredit anything related to replacement as uh, as as this conspiracy theory. So I just I think the two things are getting muddled and I want to I want to tease them apart and, and get your takes on this frame. Who wants to start? Go for it, Lucy. <laughs> she's you. You can tell she's just grinning over here that she has thoughts. I know. What do you got? Yeah, Lucy? I'm gonna. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's so funny. I have really boring ethnic heritage, but I was thinking about this as you were saying that because I have a little bit of, um, like, a little bit of like uh, European Ashkenazi Jewish heritage of immigrants. I have some Irish Catholic heritage. But I'm mostly, uh, you know, like broadly English Protestant. And that has won out in the culture of my family. And that's how I was <laughs> raised and still am. So I think, wow, I'm, I, am the, I am really the person who should feel aggrieved here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, ah, gosh, this is a tough one because it's both everything and nothing. And it is both, it is everything in that we've talked about this before. I'm always looking for what's the answer? Like, what is the answer to why these people feel the way they do and are behaving this way? And I have, I have looked up high and low, left and right, top to bottom. It's not economic issues. It's not any, it's not um, drain the swamp. You know, each of those issue categories have caught fire because there's some legitimacy to to it, right? Like drain the swamp resonated because there is a lot of corruption in our institutions, right? Um, Economic insecurity, that is real. People feel the stress of inflation. They feel 
the, the, the anxiety at the gas pump, right? Those are all real things. And we're often so misled when we look, I think, at polling and how people talk in polls about, about how they're prioritizing issues, right? Like my biggest issue is the economy or whatever, because ultimately you can also start to break down some of those polls and look at the cross tabs and see that what people ultimately go to the polls and vote on, and by people I mean Republican primary voters, like the people who voted in several states this week, is white grievance. And that's it. And it's it's like the the disappointment of my professional life that I don't have a better answer than that, that it is white grievance. A super smart person that I know who works on these issues and is a person of faith told me the other day, he said, sometimes, you know, I just, I think about my own faith life and I think about why people are acting this way and talking this way. And I think maybe they have literally been overtaken by a demonic force. Like maybe they have, maybe they are, I mean, this is a person who's religious and that sounds crazy to, you know, secular people, but it's like, it's because that is his orientation and he's thinking, what is the answer? Right. And so I think, I guess I don't have a very interesting answer, except that this is top to bottom, left to right, forwards, backwards, every way, white grievance, and there is nothing else to it. And so there is no way, I don't think that there is a way that we can conventionally campaign our way out of this. I don't think that there is a way, I I have come to completely reject the idea that we just need like some New York Times writers to go sit in a fucking diner, <laughs> sorry, you know, yep. and, and hear from people because ultimately they're gone. Those people are gone. And we, what we need to do is try to confine their illness <laughs> to yeah. as, as small a group as possible and, and contain it and, 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 and then try to eradicate it over time. Well, and how about that? To put a, you know, <laughs> That's to, <a> take. <laughs> to put a finer point on, on Lucy's um, good point about white grievance, the reason we're talking about this this week is because a neo-Nazi shot a bunch of black people in Buffalo and said that he wanted to kill more. And he um, basically was reading from Elise Stefanik's playbook. Like his words and the words of his Republican representative are shockingly similar. And if you are, um, you know, a, a member of Congress who is spouting this bile and then someone commits a violent hate crime in your district, you don't get to send your thoughts and prayers. Like, buzz off. It is not okay. And so Elise Stefanik just makes me livid all the time. So um, I have to start with that. Like she is perpetuating this. And you know what happened? We saw what happened in Buffalo. So it is It is not, uh, you know, it is It is not benign. Um, it, is, it is really very, very shocking. I, I think that we should stop assuming that people like Elise Stefanik and her ilk I think we we tend to have an attitude about them like that is very cynical like they knew what they know exactly what they're doing they these Fox News hosts these Republicans in Congress these Republican candidates they are doing this because they are in search of power and this is who they are and 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 that's a very cynical view I, I, Increasingly, I think they are also ill. They are also ill with the sickness. So I, I think that that's, I, I really think we should start treating this like a virus. 
And I don't want to at all minimize the what happened in Buffalo because it's terrible and it's awful and n- n- nothing but nothing but just horror. But that is this is sh- also showing up every day in micro interactions in communities that are nonviolent, <laughs> and it's showing up in policymakers policy agendas and votes cast. And that still has very real repercussions in people's lives. Yeah. I mean, I think with Stefanik, I just, I distinguish between people who seem to have had the virus for many years and people who have late come to act like they have the virus. I think um, Lucy and I, before Ron got on today, we're talking about psychopaths versus sociopaths. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. And I think Elise Stefanik is a psychopath, not a sociopath. Like she's acting the part. She, she That wasn't who she was when she got elected Congress. She's acting the part because it behooves her. Um, but on the on the broader, um, you know, great replacement bullshit, like here's the thing. We think of America as a melting pot. Right. That is what we talk about. And the whole idea behind this melting pot and the when I read the through line on Brad Stevens column, it was that we have someone or a group of people who are new to our country and then they assimilate and they melt into the United States that we know and love. And that has happened over and over again. And in fact, it is part of, I believe, why um, a lot of um, a, a lot of folks down ballot lost some Latino votes in um, in 2020. Democrats did. They eroded amongst Latinos because we're we're talking to Latinos as if they all are, you know, applying for asylum at the border. And they're not. They're, you know, fourth generation, like small business owners who, um, you know, have brothers who work on the oil and gas rigs. Like, it's just they they have done and acted out the American dream and they're bought mm. in. Um, so they're not an other. They're part of of us. And I think both parties do a disservice in thinking about this in that kind of um in that kind of reductionist way because you know Democrats have been talking for 10 years about how our path out of this wilderness is to um you know have demographics equals destiny well we'll just we'll replace the white people and then we'll win and that's just as it's not just as dangerous as the other but it's it's just as reductionist i also think that we can't talk about the great replacement theory peace and white grievance without talking about the nexus between white grievance and evangelical Christianity. Yes. Yes. I think, you know, again, because I'm a masochist and I spend a lot of time um, analyzing uh, 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 state legislative races in battleground states and et cetera, um, I spend a lot of time looking at people's campaign websites. And you know, I came up in Republican politics. There was always definitely more kind of like icky stuff around that in, in coming up. You know, you go to a Lincoln Day dinner and you have like a million prayers that just feel like a little bit much and like a little bit like, okay, this is not such an open big tent. This is like a, you know, and, and again, I grew up Episcopalian, right? So this is about as foreign to me as Oh, that is completely Baha'i. native to me. And honestly, <laughs> yeah. inevitably, there's somebody dressed up as an elephant, but anyway. Yeah, exactly. 
but but really? these uh, these candidates, it's gone from like okay, kind of like secret handshake, and it's important that you let people know where you go to church, and you know, like we love a we love a a long prayerful moment at the beginning of a Lincoln Day dinner. To it's in it's in their campaign literature in ways that I really have not seen before. You know, like reference to Ephesians and stuff. It's, just, it's really unusual. It's that is kind of new, and and I I was spending time because you know, everyone is so thrilled that Madison Cawthorn was defeated in in his Republican primary challenge. Uh, his the the victor in that race, Chuck Edwards, who's a, a state a, a state legislator from North Carolina. First of all, don't get too excited. He's probably not going to be that much better. But on his website, he gave a pledge to his constituents, would-be constituents. And number three on his pledge is, I pledge to be guided by my Christian faith and family values in all my decisions. Like in all of your decisions, right? I pledge to be guided by my Christian faith. That's something that makes me very uncomfortable when thinking about lawmaking, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right? We, 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 you know, I've, I've always truthfully, truthfully, maybe not paying enough attention. I've always thought that people make too much of the, the, the panic over whether or not we're maintaining separation between church and state, because obviously like a person who's super, super faithful and very religious is going to be, you know, it's on some level guided by that in a way that a person who's completely secular as an atheist is also guided by that. But that is distinct from people who are going to go be representatives in the U.S. Congress saying, I will act and, and use my Christian faith to yeah, it's getting, it's getting very close to, I'm going to make decisions about policy based on what the Bible says. And that's, uh, that's where it's approaching. I have a fantastic story around that, but I'm going to save it for plus okay. because you really, <laughs> really, it's worth it. You should subscribe to get that story. We'll go back to that. But um, I just wanted to throw in um, this thought about white evangelicals. I, I, I've thought a lot about this in, in my work and um, listened to a podcast this week from Slate. Um, political gab fest that um, was called Why yes. Did White Evangelicals Get So Angry? It was so good. It was so good. Was and so, good. so I, I recommend for yeah. subscribe after this one. Um, but uh, what I found interesting was the distinction between the leadership of the evangelical churches and the people in the pews. And so it should, they talked a lot about the ousting of leaders of these megachurches because they're not sufficiently Trumpy. They're not sufficiently white supremacists. And um, and that is baffling to me. And it just reminds me of, you know, in, in 2010, 2011, 2012, um, we were making really great gains on getting religious communities to support immigration reform. And it is part of why we got a bill across the finish line with more than 70 votes in the Senate in 2013. Um, this uh, really, really smart strategist, Ali Narani, um, at the National Immigration Forum started a thing called Bibles Bad and businesses. And it was sheriffs and um, pastors and religious leaders and um, business leaders that were appealing to Republicans to say, we need to pass immigration reform. And the head of the National Association of Evangelicals um, testified in favor of immigration reform and is now basically a persona non grata (laughs) in, in that community because the, their leadership was in a different place. Their leadership has been more educated than the folks in the pews. They've been more, um, you know, up to date on policy ideas and and what our country needs. And they could not 
bring their parishioners along with them. And now, you know, the head has been cut off and the flailing arms and legs are running around making havoc. We are going to do a lot more stuff on evangelicals, especially white evangelicals in America and what is happening because it's, you know, we keep saying we got to talk about this and there's, it's almost like a a problem. So it's, it's such a tangled problem that it's hard to know exactly where to start. And that's what I've been struggling with, especially because I'm, I have, you know, my heritage is so close to that. (laughs) It's, you know, uh, yeah, someone we might need to f- do a role reversal, and maybe I, someone should interview Ron. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and we d- haven't even yeah. gotten into the like masculinity stuff and the misogyny oh, no. that's all woven yeah. in all of this yeah. in the Great Replacement stuff in the white evangelical machismo, <laughs> like all throw in row. Yeah, there's a oh lot. Oh my god. There. Yeah, there, and and like it's funny. I I saw a. I, I know we got to move on to the next segment, but I saw recently this clip of you know some. Uh, you know, uh, evangelical event for men in a big stadium recently that reminded me, the event itself reminded me of what, you know, you guys remember Promise Keepers yeah. way back in the day? Yeah. Promise Keepers was like this pro, like this convention for guys to go to, to become better Christian guys. And this video, what, and like, you know, they did traditionally masculine things at this whatever conference. I never went to one, but, um, but I certainly was given the literature. Uh, and. Uh, this video I saw on Twitter of a, of a recent version of this, it's not Promise Keepers, but something like it, has like a, it's like in a monster truck rally with flames going and like electric guitars. And it's like, how how over the top can we possibly be? And it's all in the name of Jesus, right? Like, oh, yeah. Jesus is the sponsor of this event. Can you, I, I just, what is happening to this, to this particular subculture is, um, I don't. I don't have the words for it yet, but but we're gonna go there, Lucy. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna come back to that because it is it really is core. I think too. If you um, go there, you should the Republican Party definitely yeah. bring on um, the author of Jesus and John Wayne, um, Kristen Cobes Dumez, um, who it, it, like the book is phenomenal, and she really talks about this you know um, this like masculinization of Jesus thing that's yeah. happening um, and then traces the history of it and when it happened it is excellent and sh- I'm sure she would oh, come good. on the pod okay great uh, by the way this uh, feels like a good uh, place to remind people that Lucy it was a year ago today that you and I recorded a conversation specifically about Elise okay. Stefanik so uh, time you wanna, flies when you're I, not I know, having fun. Right? So speaking of Elise <laughs> Stefanik, if you want to do a deep dive on where she came from, what she's, you know, what she's, uh, what she's up to and how to read her decision-making, um, Lucy tells all. <laughs> that That's how fast this transformation happens, right? A year ago, so that was right after Liz Cheney was kicked out, right? Because she thought, uh, storming the Capitol was a little bit of a problem. And Elise Stefanik got right in there. And at the time, you and I were saying, Ron, like, you know, it's kind of weird because Elise is really kind of moderate in a lot of ways. And so we'll see what happens. That's how fast the transmogrification of these people from middle of the road, old timey chamber of commerce, kind of like Republicans to monsters happens. But the the thing that I remember about our conversation was that we we both really zeroed in on character, 
And I think it would, I, I want to go back and listen to this conversation because I think it would, yeah. it would um, foretell the story of Elise Stefanik to, to all the way to yeah. today, just by reading her character and what, um, and how we, how we discuss that. So. Okay. On Wednesday, Axios is reporting that DHS is warning law enforcement partners that there are potential threats both to the public and to members of the Supreme Court in response to the release of a draft decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade. In this uh, memo obtained by Axios, DHS warns that, quote, domestic violence extremists and criminal actors have adopted narratives surrounding abortion rights to encourage violence which would increase the threat to government, religious, and reproductive health care personnel and facilities and ideological opponents. The memo notes a significant uptick in threats of violence on social media, some of them directed at the Supreme Court justices and the building. According to CNN, the memo also shows that since July of 2021, there have been at least four violent confrontations between ideological opponents at abortion-related protests in Oregon and California, where... People used smoke grenades, paintball guns, batons, chemical irritants, and bats. They also warned that foreign and domestic threat actors have called for violence directed at SCOTUS, clerks, healthcare providers, and anti-abortion and abortion rights activists. So, of course, violence around abortion rights isn't new. The memo notes that at least 10 murders have been committed by anti-abortion rights extremists, as well as dozens of attacks targeting abortion providers. And in 2021, there were several arson attacks targeting reproductive health care facilities. So this is, uh, I think, third week in a row um, that Roe is on the on the podcast. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't be with you all for the, for the roundup that you did with Liz, but I hear it was um, fantastic. Uh, last week we talked about the protests. Um, I, I talked with Mike and, and James about the protests and I wonder, since we haven't discussed this, how you both are thinking about the rise in political violence, um, especially in the context of armed occupation of the Michigan state house and January 6th. Um, to me, this feels like another escalatory data point in the, the rise of, of political violence in, uh, in America. Lene? Yeah, I'll have to. I have to say, I I listened to every single one of your podcasts, and I had to turn it off last week because I think that the false equivalence between the protests, like candlelight vigils on the left, versus insurrections on the right, is bullshit. Frankly, yeah. and I think the conversation you guys had made it sound like you were saying somebody who stands with a candle outside of John Roberts' house is the same as somebody who is is bombing an abortion clinic. Those are not the same thing. And it is wildly more dangerous in this country to be an abortion provider than a Supreme Court justice. And I have seen zero um, evidence that, you know, left-wing um, nuts are going around killing people. Like, that is not happening. And it reminded me of when, you know, all of a sudden the right wing started saying, well, um, Black Lives Matter protests are the same as January 6th. They're not. And I just, I just think we, that we have to realize that there is an asymmetry here. And if you want to stand with a candlelight, uh, you know, outside a Supreme Court justice's house, that is a different thing than threatening harm to the family of an election official. Those are not the same. Yes, agree. 
I think the distinction for me is uh, the intimidation of judges versus uh, how is a candlelight vigil in, in no, intimidation? No, no, I agree with you. I agree. I, <laughs> a candlelight uh, well, vigil is not intimidating. <laughs> you uh, can be in your Mc- McLean mansion. And someone can be at the end of your driveway with a candle and you are I, not intimidated. I disagree. That is clearly that I disagree. I'm not saying that I think it's wrong or improper, but the the maybe intimidating isn't the right word, but the yeah. the the purpose was to make Brett Kavanaugh and his wife and children feel uncomfortable. And I'm not I'm not I'm actually not casting judgment on that. But that was not like Oh, see us! Like, would you like to come out and hold hands with us, and we'll like, you know, try to do a kumbaya? No, that was a show of of like strength to you know. Look, we can make your life a living hell, and we're at the end of your driveway. I just think we should be frank about that. That was the intent, right? But that's not the same as intimidation, and you know, sure. I'm all for right. um, it's, I'm all for sure. uh, you know, um, racist Trump officials. Um, having to live in the District of Columbia where people disagree with what they're doing and say so when they're out to dinner. Like, I'm all for that. If you're sitting next totally. to Stephen Miller at, yeah. in your Mexican restaurant, tell him to go F himself. Like, I, I think totally. that's great. Like, you have to live in this place and you are going to be made uncomfortable because you're making decisions that your community disagrees with. And I just think that there's a difference between, you know, that and violence. Yeah, of course. And look, any kind, any public figure, and it begins with a much smaller public profile than being a Supreme Court justice or being a U.S. senator. Part of the territory comes with people are going to tell you how they feel, right? Everyone knows that going into it. Same side of the, it's just a different side of the same coin of you're also getting a lot of accolades from people who love you and and think you're great. So it it's it's obviously ridiculous for public figures, especially people who are elected or have chosen to be in the public eye through a federal appointment. It's obviously ridiculous for those people to act like they're entitled to the kind of private lives of a person who's just keeping their head down and like lives in a suburb of St. Louis and, you know, works at, as a financial advisor, right? That, that's ridiculous. I think that thinking about, um, I think about whether or not it's a good idea to have people um, outside of Brett Kavanaugh's house or whatever pick, you know, Josh Hawley's pick, you take your pick as um, the, the, whether it's strategic from the perspective of how they will turn around and use that in a future election cycle, in a future, in a future um, debate in the public square. And I think it's ineffective. Right. But they I might... agree that there's a false equivalency. Of yeah. course, they're right. not the same. Because yeah. it, that, if you're agree. overplaying just... your hand and making them look like the victim, like that might not be strategically helpful. Yeah. So I just, I just, first of all, I want to go on record as agreeing with you about the, there is no, there is not a false equivalency between, between these, these, these events. Um, but there is, there is a false equivalency. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. That's, that's what I mean. But there is a false, <laughs> there, there, there is a false equivalency. They are not equivalent is the point. I, I agree with you. They are not equivalent. Um, what DHS is warning about here though, is different than the candlelight vigils. And, and I think it's important to make that distinction uh, but there has been an increase in attempts to intimidate lawmakers like in Michigan and on January 6th. And 
for me, I see a difference between, and maybe this is just Pollyanna-ish, but I see a difference between an attempt to influence judges versus uh, versus elected officials. Um, now, in some cases, judges are elected, which that's a whole <laughs> other you know ball of act, which is problematic, deeply problematic. But yes, um, I I I don't know. Um, I see them as I see them as different, and I also see the you know candlelight is not you know violent protest. Um, but I, I fear that going down this path where anybody is fair game anytime, anywhere, whatever they're doing is a really dangerous standard to set. And that feels like where we're headed if we don't draw a line and say, we have public servants who are committed to doing the will of the people, or at least as they understand the will of their people. Um, and. And if we make that life so horrible an experience or even threatening to their life and property, why should we expect more people to get involved in civic action uh, and sort of what, what, what becomes of government at that point? So well, that's, first of that's all, you're trying to redraw a line that we are so far past. Like, we can't even see where that line yeah. used to be. So it's just not my top concern about who's standing outside of Justice Alito's house. I also think this Supreme Court has very clearly made itself a third political branch of government. They've made that incredibly clear. So nobody was standing outside Justice Breyer's house when they disagreed with his decisions. Nobody was standing outside of Rehnquist's house when they disagreed with his decisions. But they have put themselves in this position and very clearly said, we want to be political actors. This is what we're doing now. But the thing that I thought was scariest when you were reading was it made me think more about something like Kyle Rittenhouse. Like, I remember how scary that moment was when, you know, there were protests in the street and, and people of like very different opinions were like together in mass and getting violent with each other. And, and to be clear, the violence was coming from the right again towards the Black Lives Matter protesters. But um, that is really scary to me. And that was, you know, when you started reading the DHS thing, I'm like, oh, I could see like it, things getting very out of control very quickly in that kind of scenario. Yeah, I think that what what I would say to echo that is when we think about this, when we zoom out from this, what we're headed toward, people often be like, oh my God, we could have a civil war. We could have a civil war. I don't think we're headed toward a civil war. We are headed toward an era and and we, I think, may look back on this, I hope not, but I think we may, and see that we're already in the early stages mm. of it, of wide-scale political violence that is breaking out, you know, in cities and towns across the country and in places where, you know, a, a, there's a proxy war in like, you know, small town Idaho for something that was never divisive in that town before. And, and I, I think, but, but I, again, I think that's right. I think that's where we are. Yeah. That's right. And, and what I come back to is the, the problem is if you are on team democracy, (laughs) Unfortunately, we are not battling another team that is following the same rules of play. We are battling a cult and very sick, twisted people. TBD, how cognizant some of them, the leaders are or are not of what they're doing, but they're a cult. And unfortunately, we cannot expect normal rules of engagement from them. And so to the degree that we can, and this is hard when you're thinking about 
you know, getting all the stakeholders involved from the leaders to grassroots, we have to be thinking about how will this be used against us, right? And so I, that's, that's just what it comes down to for me, right? This is how I felt about defund the police. It's how I felt about looting. And it's how I feel about this, right? It's like these things, no, are Democrats in mass or be, or like Black Lives Matter protesters, people who are out looting? Of course not. No, they're not, right? Are pro-choice activists um, out committing violence or whatever? No, they're not. They're not. But you cannot give these people an inch because they will take a mile. And the mile that they take is taking our country away from a future democracy. Well, and it's like we're still trying to live by the Geneva Conventions and we're fighting yes, Osama bin Laden, exactly. you know, and we're exactly. like, oh, like how, you know, uh, what are the rules that I need to <laughs> have this prisoner, prisoner of war, um, you know, under Geneva Convention number whatever. And then the other side is just literally terrorists. So yeah, it's, it's <laughs> this is right. the way Russia fights. That's right. Okay, now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk briefly about what we're watching. Um, Lene, what do you have for us? I'm going to do two very fast. So one is we just referenced state judges, and you may have seen that um, the Michigan um, state courts just said, um, just used a preliminary injunction to say that Michigan's um, ban of abortions that's currently on their books is likely unconstitutional under the state constitution. And so if and when that leaked opinion does become final, um, Michigan Michigan was about to have an abortion ban that popped right back into place, one of those zombie ones. Um, But the state court stopped it. And it made me think, wow, we've been thinking a lot about governors and state legislatures when it comes to Mm. Roe, but we need to think about state courts. Like this is, and and to our point, some of those are elected judges. Do you remember when um, in Iowa, the judges um, held um, marriage equality as a right under the Iowa constitution, and then all of them were ousted? Like that's the next battleground. So I really want to keep an eye on that. The other is next week is- also a little bit of hope. That's right. Right. Potentially. Yeah. yeah, Potentially. If we get ahead of it. But as Lucy says, we're not usually very good at that. Uh, (laughs) The other is um, next week is the second anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And um, it uh, sounds like the Biden administration actually might release an executive order that takes some major action on policing reform, which would be very welcome to folks who have seen that languish in Congress. So um, looking forward to um, hoping that that is very robust and also that it's framed in a way that isn't used, um, isn't make it easy to be used by Republicans as a cudgel in the election. I think that is, we need to make progress. And also we know Republicans are going after Democrats about being soft on crime. So it's a tricky issue, but it's one that we need to take action on and do so in a politically um, thoughtful way. Good point. Lucy, what do you got? So I don't usually follow celebrity news, but this this uh, this straddles that category, and I'm bringing this up in part because uh, my initial impulse was don't pay attention to this. This is like just you know celebrity rag stuff that I don't care about. But I I 
finally last night read an opinion piece about the ongoing trial uh, between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And it was really, it was really shocking to me because I've only followed this from afar. And basically the, the gist I've gotten is, uh, you know, Amber Heard is crazy. Johnny Depp was wronged. He's look that they're assorted. It's a sordid affair, sordid marriage, unfortunate but she's like a a person who's a lunatic and 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 you know he's he's getting a really great treatment in the press and that's been my impression as a person who has not followed this and has been like following like Pennsylvania returns there's a there's a piece by Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times called Amber Heard and the Death of Me Too mm. and she says you know there are ambiguities in the sordid conflict between the divorced actors but some things are clear and this is brace yourselves. Depp texted a friend that he wanted to kill Heard and then have sex with her, quote, burnt corpse afterward to make sure she is dead, end quote. And that is not normal. And I think that when we talk about backlash on the right, but really backlash in the mainstream to so-called wokeism, to so-called progressivism, you know, we have to see the way that this really trickles down to a lot of things, a backlash against a lot of things that have been very good. And Me Too, in my opinion, is something that has been really, really good. And I would just suggest to people, I've, I've seen a lot of tweets this week that are like, I don't want to talk about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp because there are more important things. We need to talk about Buffalo. We need to talk about formula. We can talk about all of these things. These are not mutually exclusive. But the point that this piece makes really, I mean, that's a shocking, that is a shocking quote to hear and really just horrifying. But the point that this piece makes is that that we're seeing a backlash to Me Too that takes the form of... um, you know, these there are these crazy women, they're hurting everyone, but it's very clear, especially because th- th- this, this is a trial that Johnny Depp initiated. He mm-hmm. is suing Amber Heard. He is suing her, right? This is his thing. This is not a thing she initiated. Um, just take a take a second look at it and and take a second look at it and, and think about what the outcome of this trial could mean for other women's ability to come forward and what the down downward stream of this will be. And, and keep in mind when you do, if you look into it, that what makes these cases so tricky is that there are no perfect victims. There are just never, these are, this is messy. Humans are messy and, and crimes and conflict that involve sex and relationships are the messiest around. But I would just encourage people to take a second look at that case. <sighs> I have not been watching it at all, but that's, yeah, same. man, that clear, I mean, and I, I feel the same way you do about celebrity news. I just sort of like swipe right by yeah, it and right. I don't give it a, give it a bother, but good one. Um, okay. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about this uh, new way to think about Elon Musk, potentially. Where can people find you on the internet, Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus.
And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.